Hello, and welcome to Plutarch's Greeks and Romans, a podcast taking you on a tour through ancient Greek and Roman history, seen through the lives of the most famous and influential people who lived it, with the ancient historian and biographer Plutarch as our guide and companion. So Chris, in part one of the life of Pericles, we trace the rise of Pericles to heights of political power and influence never achieved before in democratic Athens. We discussed how Pericles' leadership corresponded with an economic and cultural boom in Athens, made possible by military successes around the Aegean by the Delian League, which was dominated by Athens. By this point, most members of the League contributed money for defense rather than men or ships, which allowed Athens with her powerful fleet to often treat the other cities of the League as vassals and force any reluctant members to stay within the alliance. Meanwhile, money from the League treasury was used to fund the construction of the Parthenon and other building projects in Athens. And finally, in part one, we touched on how the growing power of Athens was beginning to concern Sparta and some of her allies in the Peloponnesian League, such as Corinth. Not only was Athens growing in strength and influence, but after the death of Cimon, Athens was following the lead of Pericles, who was openly antagonistic towards Sparta, where Cimon was openly sympathetic. However, in spite of their differences, Athens and Sparta were able to conclude a 30 years peace in 445 BC, sparing the Greek world from a devastating clash of titans. That being said, Peace between Athens and Sparta did not mean peace throughout the Greek world. It seems there was always a squabble happening somewhere. In 441 BC, there was conflict between Samos and Miletus, both members of the Delian League. When Athens requested that the two polis put an end to their war, Samos refused to comply, and so Pericles organized an expedition against the rebellious island of Samos. Plutarch mentions that it is said that Pericles took this offensive against Samos to please his lover Aspasia, who was born in Miletus. You may recognize Aspasia's name. She's one of the few women of ancient Greece whose name, along with her life story, or at least some of it, was recorded and preserved. While the experience of women in ancient Greece seems to have differed somewhat from one polis to another, as we've seen, Spartan women seem to have enjoyed a bit more freedom and educational opportunities. Overall, though, ancient Greek society was very chauvinistic. In Athens, a woman's life was mostly confined to the home. Aspasia's life seems to have been a rare and spectacular exception to the norm. She was a highly skilled courtesan whose wisdom and wit were prized as much as or more than her beauty. Indeed, in the case of Pericles, Plutarch says that it was primarily her skill and understanding of politics that he admired. Plutarch also mentions that Socrates would visit Aspasia's home with his acquaintances and followers to talk and that these men would bring their wives along with them as well. Wow, this kind of sounds almost like a salon in the 18th century Paris. Yeah, I agree. It does almost. Now, Aspasia was not Pericles' wife. He and his wife are said to have mutually decided to separate when they grew to dislike each other's company, sometime following the birth of their two sons, Xanthippus and Perilus. She went to another man, and Pericles went to Aspasia, who he is said to have loved with great devotion. Plutarch writes that, Every day, both as he went out and as he came in from the marketplace, he saluted and kissed her. A wise man. That's a very good habit to have. 100%. Pericles' relationship with his eldest son, Xanthippus, though, was an extremely rocky one. Xanthippus resented how tight his father was with money, especially after young Xanthippus married a young woman with expensive tastes. Matters came to a head when Xanthippus incurred a debt and couldn't afford to pay it back, and Pericles refused to bail out his son and pay the debt for him. After this incident, 
The bitter Xanthippus was known to badmouth his father and spread embarrassing stories about him all over Athens. It's interesting how often a child does not inherit the morals and character of their parents. <laughs> Very true. Anyway, getting back to the conflict between Samos and Miletus. Athens asked the two cities to submit their differences to arbitration, but Samos refused. So Pericles convinced the assembly to send a fleet to Samos. The rebellious city was occupied, its oligarchical government was dissolved, and 50 prominent citizens were taken as hostages to the Isle of Lemnos. However, no sooner had the Athenians sailed home when these oligarchs managed, with Persian aid, to return to Samos and start another revolt. So Pericles sailed out at command of another Athenian fleet to subdue this rebellion. Now Samos was one of the few members of the Delian League that still maintained its own fleet and contributed ships rather than money to the League defense. And so the Samians did have hopes to resist the Athenians. In fact, Plutarch reports that when Pericles' fleet arrived, and found that the Samians had not fled, but instead prepared to fight, the Samians' fleet actually outnumbered the fleet that Pericles arrived with. There were some 70 Samian ships to 44 Athenian, so Samos was certainly not a pushover. After a fierce sea battle around the island of Trigia, however, the Athenians emerged triumphant and proceeded to besiege the city of Samos. The Samians would appeal to Sparta for help, and the Spartans convened a meeting of the Peloponnesian League to discuss the matter, but it was ultimately decided to keep the peace with Athens. Samos was on its own. Now, siege warfare at this time in Greece was not highly developed, and options for conquering a fortified city were few. The attacking army could try to storm the walls, which was extremely risky. They could try to starve out the enemy or taint their water supply. Or they could try to get someone within the city to open the gate and let them in. One new innovation that Plutarch mentions Pericles made use of during the siege of Samos, was a siege engine invented by the engineer named Artemon, a battering ram. Plutarch writes that Pericles was much taken with the curiousness of this invention. Thucydides does not mention the ram, but his account of the siege of Samos is fairly brief, so I'm willing to give our guy Plutarch the benefit of the doubt on this one. In any event, new technology or not, it took nine months before the Samians gave in and surrendered. The Athenians seized their ships, forced them to tear down their city walls, and fined them heavily for the cost of the war. As per tradition, upon returning to Athens there was a public burial of those who had died in the fighting at Samos, and Pericles gave a funeral oration at the public burial. Thucydides records another later funeral oration in 431 BC, but it is quite possible that elements of both speeches are included in the oration that Thucydides records. Pericles foregoes the normal form and content of funeral speeches, and goes beyond praising the dead, and instead praises the greatness of Athens itself, highlighting what sets it apart from any other polis, and reminding the Athenians of what they have to fight for. Thucydides writes that Pericles said, Our constitution does not copy the laws of neighboring states. We are rather a pattern to others than imitators ourselves. Its administration favors the many instead of the few. This is why it is called a democracy. If we look to the laws, they afford equal justice to all in their private differences. If to social standing, advancement in public life falls to reputation for capacity, class considerations not being allowed to interfere with merit. Nor again does poverty bar the way. If a man is able to serve the state, he is not hindered by the obscurity of his condition. The freedom which we enjoy in our government extends also to our ordinary life. There, far from exercising a jealous surveillance over each other, we do not feel called upon to be angry with our neighbor for doing what he likes. Further, we provide plenty of means for the mind to refresh itself from business, 
We celebrate games and sacrifices all the year round, and the elegance of our private establishments forms a daily source of pleasure and helps to distract us from what causes us distress, while the magnitude of our city draws the produce of the world into our harbor, so that to the Athenian the fruits of other countries are as familiar a luxury as those of his own. If we turn to our military policy, there also we differ from our antagonists. We throw open our city to the world, and never by alien acts exclude foreigners from any opportunity of learning or observing. We cultivate refinement without extravagance, and knowledge without effeminacy. Wealth we employ more for use than for show, and place the real disgrace of poverty not in owning to the fact, but in declining the struggle against it. Our public men have, besides politics, their private affairs to attend to, and our ordinary citizens, though occupied with the pursuits of industry, are still fair judges of public matters. For, unlike any other nation, we regard the citizen who takes no part in these duties not as unambitious, but as useless and we are able to judge proposals even if we cannot originate them. Instead of looking on discussion as a stumbling block in the way of action, we think it an indispensable preliminary to any wise action at all. In short, I say that as a city we are the school of Hellas, while I doubt if the world can produce a man who, where he has only himself to depend upon, is equal to so many emergencies and graced by so happy a versatility as the Athenian. Very well said. Berkeley sure knows how to give a motivational speech. Yeah, he sure does, although not everyone was impressed with his fine words. Plutarch reports that, As he came down from the stage on which he spoke, the rest of the women came and complimented him, taking him by the hand and crowning him with garlands and ribbons, like a victorious athlete in the games. But Alpinike, coming near to him, said, These are brave deeds, Pericles, that you have done, and such as deserve our chaplets, who have lost us many a worthy citizen, not in a war with Phoenicians or Medes, like my brother Chimon, but for the overthrow of an allied and kindred city. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. Now, the conflict with Samos, thankfully, did not grow into a wider conflagration, but it was only a matter of time before another potential flashpoint emerged. In 433 BC, trouble was emerging again, this time not in the Aegean Sea, but to the west, in the Ionian Sea, centered on the polis of Corcyra, on the island of Corfu, in northwest Greece. It was founded as a colony of Corinth in the Archaic period, and now was one of the three great naval powers in Greece, along with Athens and its mother city of Corinth, who Corcyra now found itself at war with. Corcyra had won the first naval battle against Corinth, but now Corinth was preparing for a large-scale attack, building a large fleet of ships and hiring sailors from across Greece. The Corcyraeans decided to send an embassy to Athens to request their aid against Corinth, while Corinth also sent an embassy to Athens warning them not to intervene. Corcyra's embassy pointed out that they were currently not aligned with either Athens or with the Spartan-led Peloponnesian League. So by aiding them, Athens would be securing a powerful ally located strategically on the route to the Greek cities in southern Italy and Sicily, and denying a powerful ally to their rivals. So what do you think, Chris? What is the right decision here? Should Athens aid Corcyra at the risk of ending the peace with Sparta, or risk having Corcyra gobbled up by the Peloponnesian League? Well, you know, Ryan, that, that's a definitely a tough one. I mean, if Athens was thinking that war is inevitable anyways, they're probably better off making an ally as opposed to, you know, giving this ally over to the Peloponnesian League, and uh, which would aid Sparta anyways against them. So I'd probably say back the ally. Well, it seems that the majority of Athenians did feel that perhaps conflict with Sparta was unavoidable, since the assembly did vote to make an alliance with Corcyra, though it was strictly a defensive alliance. Athens would help defend Corcyra from invasion, but would not aid in any attack on Corinth. 
thus not violating the terms of the Thirty Years' Peace. But the Athenians only sent a meager ten ships to defend Corcyra under the command of Lacedaemonius, the son of Cimon. Plutarch suggests that Pericles may have deliberately arranged for such a small number of ships to be dispatched, because he had it out for Cimon's sons, and wanted to set Lacedaemonius up for failure. I'm not sure, though. It seems more likely that the small contingent was meant as a further measure to preserve the peace. The ships were commanded not to intervene unless the Corinthians attempted to land on the island. Corinth, undeterred by the possibility of Athenian involvement, sent a fleet of 150 ships to Corcyra. Corcyra was able to send out 110 ships in their defense. The ensuing sea battle was hard fought, with Thucydides reporting that both sides had large numbers of hoplites aboard their ships, and also many archers and javelin throwers. The battle was fought in the old-fashioned way. There were no naval tactics really employed here, just a mass of ships swarming with soldiers and sailors, fighting with everything they had. The ten Athenian ships did not join the fray, but did confuse the Corinthians with several false attacks. Eventually, the Corcoranes were successful on the left wing, forcing the Corinthian ships on that wing to retreat. However, too many ships went chasing after these fleeing ships, leaving the Corinthians with a decided advantage in the main battle. The tide swung heavily in their favor, and the battle turned into a rout. At this point, the Athenian ships joined into the battle, but it was too late. The Corcoran ships were chased back towards the land, where they and the Athenians readied themselves for one last stand to prevent the enemy from landing. With the day getting late, the Corinthians formed a line, and began singing the paean of attack, when suddenly twenty Athenian ships sailed into view, having been sent as reinforcements from Athens. The Corinthians saw them first, and retreated from the battle. The next day, the Athenian ships, now numbering thirty, along with the remnants of the Corcoran fleet, sailed out to confront the Corinthians, who at this point decided that discretion was the better part of valor, and sailed back to Corinth. So what does this mean for the peace treaty? Well, the Corinthians were obviously furious. They had actually voted against the Peloponnesian League getting involved in the conflict between Athens and Samos, so they felt particularly wronged by Athens now meddling in their affairs. To make matters worse, soon after the incident at Corcyra, the Athenians and Corinthians clashed again at the Battle of Potidaea. Potidaea was a city on the Chalkidiki Peninsula in northern Greece. It was originally a colony of Corinth, but was now part of the Delian League. Fearing the city was about to revolt due to Corinthian and Macedonian influences, Athens demanded that it pull down its walls and send hostages to Athens. This caused a real revolt, and a subsequent battle between the Potidaeans and Corinthians on one side, and Athenians on the other, in which the Athenians emerged the victors. Plato's dialogues reveal that Socrates actually fought in the Battle of Potidaea, and in the battle he saved the life of a young Alcibiades, a relation of Pericles, second cousin actually, who we will hear more about in the future episodes. Anyway, after the battle, Athens settled in for a long siege of Potidaea, which lasted for several years. In the meanwhile, this was another grievance for Corinth. Megara, another member of the Peloponnesian League, also supported war with neighboring Athens. A border dispute had led Athens to bar Megara from conducting trade at any port or market under Athenian control. The Spartans listened to the complaints of their allies, but as always they were cautious about going to war, so they first sent embassies to Athens, demanding them to repeal the decree against Megara. Pericles urged the Athenians to reject the demands of the Spartan envoys. The terms of the Thirty Years' Peace called for arbitration, not unilateral demands, he argued. If Athens should cave into Spartan bullying, they would lose their ability to make their own decisions. If it comes to war, Pericles told the Athenians that they could win if they strictly adhered to a strategy he laid out for them. 
They should nullify the Spartan strength on land by avoiding a land battle and staying safe behind their fortifications, while using their superiority in wealth and naval power to weaken the Spartans. If they could stay committed to such a strategy and avoid being distracted by any new conquests, he felt they could prevail over the Spartans. Buoyed by Pericles' confidence, the Athenians voted to reject the Spartans' demands. So how do the Spartans respond to this? I mean, they basically have to attack now, do they not? Well, war did not immediately break out, but the stage was set. Neither side was budging. And when Thebes, an ally of Sparta, attacked Plataea, an ally of Athens, in 431 BC, the Peloponnesian War, as later historians would title it, had officially begun. The Thebans had attempted to seize the city of Plataea with a small force, using the element of surprise. But the attack failed, and the Plataeans then executed the Theban prisoners they took, leaving both sides feeling aggrieved. King Archidamus of Sparta responded to this event by assembling a large army and invading Attica, and the Athenians, in accordance with Pericles' strategy, did not send an army out to fight the Spartans, but instead brought the people of the countryside and their valuables behind the safety of Athens' walls. With the long walls connecting Athens to the port of Piraeus and the Athenian navy controlling the Aegean, Athens could stay well supplied by sea and hold out as long as necessary. The Spartans would proceed to ravage the unprotected countryside, which certainly led to grumbling and dissent among Athenians whose farms were being destroyed. But the Athenians would return the pain, sending a fleet of 150 triremes to sail up and down the coast of the Peloponnese, conducting raids and plundering small towns and cities. Eventually the Spartans withdrew their army, but the following summer they invaded again, and this time the Spartans had an unexpected ally. Plague. Uh-oh. That doesn't sound good. No, it was definitely not good. In the spring of 430 BC, a new illness, previously unknown to the Greeks, began to afflict people in the port of Piraeus, and soon spread to the city proper. With so many people from the countryside packed behind the city walls, this new disease spread like wildfire among a population with no resistance. The symptoms of the plague, as described by Thucydides, differ from that of the coronavirus, but, when reading his description of the effects of the disease on people and society, I couldn't help thinking of the pandemic that is currently gripping the globe in 2021. Thucydides notes that none were safe from the plague, with people who were young and previously healthy falling ill. No treatment proved effective, and many died within seven to nine days of being infected. Thucydides writes, Strong and weak constitutions proved equally incapable of resistance, all alike being swept away, although dieted with the utmost precaution. By far the most terrible feature in the malady was the dejection which ensued when anyone felt himself sickening, for the despair into which they instantly fell took away their power of resistance, and left them a much easier prey to the disorder. Besides which, there was the awful spectacle of men dying like sheep, though having caught the infection and nursing each other. This caused the greatest mortality. That's very brutal. Yeah, and it seems that both religious observance and observance of laws and traditions were eroded as despair gripped the city. With death all around them, some people lived every day as if it could be their last. Nobody was safe from this plague, and that included the family of Pericles. In addition to losing many friends and his sister, Pericles lost his estranged son Xanthippus to the sickness. Pericles continued to maintain his legendary Olympian self-composure, however, until his remaining son Perilus also fell victim to the plague. Plutarch writes that, Subdued by this blow, and yet striving still, as far as he could, to maintain his principle and to preserve and keep up the greatness of his soul, when he came, however, to perform the ceremony of putting a garland of flowers upon the head of the corpse, 
He was vanquished by his passion at the sight, so that he burst into exclamations and shed copious tears, having never done any such thing in all his life before. Well, I guess in the end, Pericles was only human, I suppose. Yeah, I can't even begin to imagine how painful it would be to bury both of your sons. After enduring those terrible losses, Pericles himself would fall victim to the plague, dying in 429 BC after a long battle with the disease. In the end, the plague would continue in Athens for five years before running its course, having killed some 25-35% to of the total population in the process. In the meantime, there was still a war with Sparta going on. Despite the devastation wrought by the plague, and losing the leadership of Pericles, Athens was still in the fight. They still had the most powerful navy, and Sparta still had no way of confronting that, or of starving the city into submission. How would the war progress with Pericles out of the picture? To find out, make sure to tune in to our upcoming episodes on Alcibiades and Nicias. Thanks, Ryan. Great episode. As always, thanks for joining us, and be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Check out the website at PlutarchsGreeksRomans.com for maps and additional info, and check us out on Facebook.